Broadcasting from the Prairie Sportsman Studios. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. <clears throat> We're not just a radio show anymore. Heck yeah. This is Sporting Journal Radio. That's right. Welcome to the show. I'm Brett Amundsen. Thank you for tuning in on this station by demand, downloading the podcast or watching this on YouTube. That's Dan Amundsen right over there. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. All right. Very good. And David Eckhart over there. David, how are you doing? Doing great. So much better now that we've showered. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a great trip. way to open. It was, it was a long trip. We'll put yeah. it that way. We just got off a, a snow goose hunting trip, and uh, and it was a pretty good one, but definitely a lot of short nights and not a lot of showering going on. But it wasn't real hot, so we didn't yeah. get all sweaty. Did we, you say we could have? Well, we had a shower. Just <laughs> one person used it. I guess we're just lazy. Well, that I mean, yes, we definitely could have, but we were we were pretty busy. I mean, we hit her pretty hard, and then we had six, seven guys in one cabin with one bathroom. It ended up getting to be kind of tough uh, to find time. I know we were all kind of yelling at, get out of the bathroom already. <laughs> it was mainly just yelling at you. Well, there was a couple people that got yelled. You got yelled yeah, at you a got couple of times a few too. Times. Why? I never. I mean, was there a line? Didn't see a line. We the weren't. The music waiting. on your phone was too loud. You could hear us <laughs> yelling at you. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I was watching Instagram Reels, <laughs> like all of you guys do. We heard. We, <laughs> my gosh. Well, we're going to talk about our snow, recent snow goose trip, the highs and lows of that trip, and uh, kind of show you some of the ways that we made our lives easier on this snow goose hunting trip, give you some tips for your next hunting trip. We're going to talk to Sam Solholt this week, too. We got a great interview with Sam talking about public land access, his trip to New Zealand, and uh, talk about his thoughts on turkey hunting in the snow. He's got some interesting tactics that he may employ that you may have never heard of before for turkey hunting. Uh, so we'll talk to Sam in just a little bit. And of course, Joe Henry will join us from Lake of the Woods Tourism with a Rainy River update. But first, Dan, who are the sponsors this week? This week we have, oh my gosh, I lost my software. There it is. We have OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan a trip to the walleye capital of the world for this spring or summer at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Live target match the hatch at livetargetlures.com. Haybell Heights Campground and Resort. Book a trip to Devil's Lake. Learn more at haybellheights.com. Alclair Audio. Save your hearing in the field, whether it's snow goose or turkeys this spring. Learn more at alclairoutdoors.com. Riverbend Resort at Lake of the Woods. Plan a spring rainy river fishing trip at www.riverbendresort.com. Ottertail Lakes Country. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. And Prairie Sportsman, a new season is underway. Watch a new episode this Sunday featuring our own David Eckhart on the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel or your local listings, wherever you may watch that. Pioneer PBS, April 2nd at 7.30 p.m. KSMQ in Austin, April 6th at 7.30 p.m. TPT Live in the Twin Cities, May 20th at 3.30 p.m. Iowa PBS, April 26th. Wyoming PBS, May 28th. And there are some other opportunities to watch it as well, including the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel. So we went uh, turkey hunting with David. And uh, you had a pretty unique shotgun that you brought out there. Yeah. That's a sub-gauge, as I've heard other people call it. It's just a side-by-side 410 that I know. But, no, it was a good hunt. And you had some some uh, hand loads that you tried out. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we won't give it away how the hunt went. 
Uh, you'll have to watch the episode of Prairie Sportsman coming out Sunday. I think it's going to be on the YouTube channel at noon on Sunday, so you get a little sneak peek if you want to watch it early. Uh, we also talk about the decline of the red-headed woodpecker and their oak savanna habitat, foraging for morel mushrooms, and more on the next episode, Turkeys and Woodpeckers. Uh, coming up this weekend all right uh it is uh about turkey season i know you guys are pretty uh pretty excited about it there's a lot of snow out there right now um how excited are you to hunt in the snow david oh i'm definitely gonna wait till it's you know warmer <laughs> <Just gonna wait. laughs> and maybe yeah. not super muddy for sure well, we got some fishing to do probably before I'll get out there in the Turkey Woods. The SGR 500, the second annual, is coming to the Rainy River, April 11th and 12th. Uh, we're going to be heading up there the 10th for a little pre-party. It's not mandatory, but if you want to come by and hang out with us Monday night, uh, April 10th at River Bend Resort, feel free to join us there. And then we're going to be fishing on the 11th and 12th from 8 to 4 p.m. It's a fish donkey uh, tournament, 40 bucks to enter, 50% payback, 25% goes to keep it clean. So check it out at sportingjournalradio.com. You can get all the information about that uh, right there at sportingjournalradio.com. So I, I'm going to call our snow goose trip to, so we went to South Dakota. I'm going to call it a success, but I'm going to call it a success, not because of the number of birds that we shot, but because we had a really good time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've definitely had way worse trips. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Snow geese, it's a, I've said it many times, it's a love-hate relationship, right? Like, you love it because there's nothing else like it when they do it, but you hate it because it's so hard. It can be very frustrating. We did it right, though. We we found a field and uh, basically hunted a spread for four days. Yeah, four days. Something like that. And it was... Everybody asked me, like, is it muddy? And there was definitely some mud, but we thankfully found uh, a high spot, high cornfield. And um, I thought for sure we were going to hunt out of an A-frame. We ended up going with layout lines, which aren't always the best. You get shadows, you got humps in the field. We did, we did one thing. We spread them out. I think we did like seven layouts that first morning. We spread them out just... It's nice to have a little bit of room and space. The, the field was real trashy, so I thought we were going to be able to hide them real well. And after looking at it with the drone, it uh, boy, they just didn't. They just stood out real bad. Yeah. So David's like, I told you guys from the beginning, <laughs> let's put them all together. Let's mega blind it. So uh, we finally did, and it looked a lot better. So if you're out there doing layouts in corn put them together that's going to help your hide out uh quite a bit make sure everything is stubbled up of course we had to move them around gosh tony kept saying well the wind's going to turn so let's let's turn the blinds around something and let's just spin the blinds around <laughs> like it's already we're already setting up in one field for the whole trip let's not do more work than we have to but when we did so what we would do is when the wind would spin instead of just spinning the blinds around we'd actually walk them down to the other end of the, the decoy spread and it definitely paid off for us uh, that last day when we finally got into them, I think we did the, made the right move there. Yeah, well, because didn't we move them down in the morning and then the move them back, and then the wind switched the last two hours of the day, and then we had to move them right back to where we had them in the first place. But. I was like, man. And uh, thankfully, we had your four wheeler on tracks. So I think that is uh, uh, if you can do it, that's kind of a, a must have in the spring. I think. Yeah, especially if it's going to be muddy, like it, they don't leave as bad of ruts if it's really wet and muddy and if it's dry you don't even know it was there 
And then you HD your own decoy trailer. I know we've kind of talked about this on the show before, but it's this decoy sled, I guess I should call it. Just real briefly, just tell us real quick what that sled's like. Well, when and I we'll first, show it on. If you're watching this on YouTube, Dan will put it up on the screen too. Well, when I first got uh, full bodies, we put them in seed bags and we would try and balance them on top of otter sleds. And that's a nightmare unless you have enough people to stand on the sled and hold the bag upright. So I built a four by six sled with rails on the side that you can stack two seed bags back to back and put a strap around them and not have them tip over and fall off and spill decoys everywhere and stop every hundred feet and pick the bag back up. And yeah, it's, uh, it's been real convenient for, you know, decoys. And looking at that, I thought you kind of messed up and made it too short for two seed bags, but it works out real well to set that second one up on top of the back and then just wrap it with a strap. Did you build it that size more for fitting in a trailer? It'll actually fit in the back of a pickup. Oh, there you go. So that's kind of why I kept it short. Yeah. And then the way the, the plastic came, it comes in a four by eight. So with that extra two feet, I had enough to wrap the sides in the back. So that's kind of how it all came. And then it just coincidentally fit into a pickup. <laughs> And okay, and what so what's that uh, the the base? What's that material? It's quarter inch, the high density plastic. And then you you welded two uh, rails or sides. Those are all one piece, and they slip into a pocket. Okay. You just bent them, and then the bottom's all one inch tubing. So and it's it's heavy, but it's convenient. And those, and you can actually remove those, which I think is kind of nice. Yeah, they pop out yeah. in and out. So uh, real easy for storage and mobility, and you're making all of us one of those. Oh, I, every, <laughs> everybody that sees it wants one. <laughs> no, it's pretty sweet, and it really helped us out uh, while we were out there uh, chasing snows around. And I'll tell you what, we thought we, we thought we timed it right with the adults, kind of trying to hit the back end of the adults. We were in the southern part of South Dakota, you know, below the snow line. I know some guys were in the snow shooting birds. Some guys were still south of us shooting birds. Uh, but we watched kind of the main mass move and, and literally migrate out while we were there. And we just started to get into the juvies when we had to leave. Mm -hmm. Granted, yeah. it was just, you know, singles and, and doubles here and there. But now there's a storm pushing them all back. Yeah. And it was that one nice day, you know, it was 50 degrees versus every other day when we hunted, it was 30. Cold, yeah. So I think that the temperature definitely played a factor in getting new birds into there. It was a little windier. They came into the spread a little bit lower, uh, played uh, a little, they cooperated a little bit better. So there's a few things that can help you on a snow goose hunt, having the right weather conditions, of course, being in the right spot and having the right gear. Because snow goose hunting is not for the faint of heart. It can uh, it can be a it can be a brutal hunt out there. So finding ways to make it a little bit easier, which I think we did. Thankfully, we you know we've got a little bit of experience doing those. So when mm -hmm. you have some some tools to make the job easier, I mean, whatever you're 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 gonna hero or zero a lot of times. And man, if you can scratch out some birds and have a good time with your buddies, that's what it's all about. That's right. All right. Sam Soholt and uh, Joe Henry coming up. we got a Lake of the Woods rainy river fishing report. And we're going to talk a lot about public land access and public access and, and restricting non-resident hunting licenses and more. And what effect that might have on the future of hunting with Sam Soholt coming up on Sporting Journal Radio. 
Kodiak, a North American waterfowl film, is coming to the Fish Hunt Forever YouTube channel. Well, I've been a sea duck hunter for about 30 seconds, and I've already got one that's probably going to go on the wall, so this is the coolest duck hunt I've ever been on. Presented by Boss Shot Shells, with support from Sitka and Beretta, and additional support from Alclair Outdoors, High Prairie Animal Arts, and the Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Riders. Watch Kodiak on the Fish Hunt Forever YouTube channel. Well, a couple of important topics uh, are going to be discussed on the show today. We've got uh, David Eckhart right over there, Dan Amundsen. My name is Brett Amundsen, and we're going to bring Sam Soholt on the show right now. Sam, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Now, I want to talk to you about a few things because, A, you went to a really cool destination recently that I think I'm, you know, it's not really on my on my bucket list, but it's on my list, right? It's on my radar. I think it'd be amazing. I've never really, you know, one time I thought about going there to hunt mallards, I think at one point. So I want to talk about where that is, what you did there, what the logistics of getting there would be, and why somebody watching or listening to this would want to go to that place. I also want to talk turkey, of course, because uh, tis the season, right? And if you look right now, though, if you look out the window, it does not look like turkey season. Uh, and I want to talk about your thoughts on uh, hunting turkeys in the snow or, you know, a real late spring like we're having and what effect that's going to have on the birds. Uh, you done, uh, you got, there's a podcast out that you're a part of talking about turkeys. We'll talk about all that. But most importantly, I think a real important discussion to have right now is about, uh, is about hunting access and with some of the different regulations taking place in different states and provinces that are, you know, lowering the number of non-resident uh, hunting licenses or tags or, or whatever, is that, is that going to protect the resource? Is that going to protect it for residents? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it going to further reduce access for hunters out there and therefore reduce hunting opportunities, hunter numbers? I want to dig into all of that. So uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, how's it going, man? I'm good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back on. Um, uh, it's good to be back in the U.S. But yeah, it was a. It was, I just had a great trip. So. Well, you went to New Zealand, and yes. oh, man, that had to be absolutely amazing. Yeah, you said it's uh, just on your radar and not specifically on your bucket list. But I think you need to add it to your bucket list because it's okay. just such a cool spot. Um, I've been there. This is my third time there. Uh, the last couple times I went, first time I went was in twenty long time ago now 2014 for a photo shoot um and then i went back in 16 nope 17 for another photo shoot with yeti um and both of those were like hunt related fish related um and this time uh my beautiful wife and i got to go down for three weeks for our delayed honeymoon so we got married uh fall of 2019 and our plan was to go in 2020 but the mm. world shut down so yeah. uh and new zealand was really strict i mean they were closed borders for a couple years um and then they finally opened back up uh, about a year ago and then kind of kept lifting restrictions so we were able to go um and we had to spend three weeks down there just doing everything we possibly could just rented a car and spent three weeks on the south island um is this you bungee jumping by the way that is that is me bungee jumping yeah wow uh oh man it's so much fun so <clears throat> all right well uh, I'll, look, yeah. I want to I want to wait on this trip I want to come back to it yeah. But uh, just real quick about the COVID deal in New Zealand. I remember that when that happened in New Zealand kind of made the news because they did completely shut all the borders down Yep. before some other countries and other places did. But, you know, you think an isolated-ish uh, island out there, shutting down the borders, don't let anybody in or out. It's a pretty good plan. And then one person got it. 
if I remember, one person tested positive for COVID and they're like, what? How did the, you know, like it made news around the world because everyone's like, right. oh, New Zealand has got everything closed. And right. they had one person get it. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, they took drastic measure. And I think a lot of that comes from being an island culture, right? I mean, sure. they're they're strict on a lot of things. So if anybody has traveled there or is planning to travel there, like if you bring uh, camping equipment, hunting, fishing equipment. Um, when you go through customs, you have to declare all that. And then they check your boots, they check your tent, they check everything for plant matter, uh, mud, you know, dirt. Cause they don't want you to haul in like any sort of invasive species, like as you know, seeds or whatever. So I think, you know, I think their approach to COVID was probably not that much different from everything else they've done with just really trying to protect their Island ecosystem, I guess sure. that's kind of the way I saw it. Well, they've kind of got their own ecosystem there, you know, when you're you're literally on an island. So mm-hmm. it's good to protect that. Well, I want to find out more about what you did there a little bit later in the show. But uh, before we get into that, let's talk turkeys, because I saw that uh, another episode of The Roost came out where you're talking turkeys with Ben O'Brien. And this is actually something you recorded last year. Yeah. So last um, February, we record end of February, we recorded eight episodes of kind of a A to Z nuts to bolts, um, turkey series as a way for people who, whether you are a beginner or like have done it for a long time, we wanted you to be able to learn something. So we kind of ran through, you know, started with a state of the union of the turkeys, um, kind of an intro, you know, to all of that and kind of what we have learned over the last few years of declines in some states and that kind of thing. And then we took it through and we got to talk to a pile of experts on everything from turkey biology with Dr. Mike Chamberlain to calling with Aaron Warbritton to uh, gear with Lake Pickle and tips and tactics with uh, um, Dave Owens and um, John, John or uh, yeah, Jason Hart. And we had Will Primos on. I mean, it was just it was a very cool collaboration of guys talking about everything turkey hunting. So I uh, recorded it last spring and it went out to uh, Ben O'Brien's um, subscribers to his Woodside premium podcast. And then we released it uh, to the public. It just started about a month ago and we all eight episodes will be available. And then we are doing Roost 2.0 coming up. So we recorded a State of the Union Turkey edition for this year. And then we've got a, We'll have a bunch of episodes coming out and we're doing a four state Western turkey tour uh, coming up here uh, in about, I guess, just under a month. We'll kick that off. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so, and the, but a few more of these episodes from last year will be coming out for free for people to be out yeah, for everybody. Every Thursday, uh, a new episode drops and that's everything we recorded last year. So we wanted to get it out there so everybody could listen to it. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, uh, we like to think it was a really, you know, kind of fun podcast to record and a lot of valuable information in there from people who are way better turkey hunters than both Ben and I. So, <laughs> well, it's a great idea, especially you know, just to not to get in uh, talk shop too much, but uh, for a premium style podcast, you know, just like an information based, you know, eight, eight episodes or whatever it was, uh, just a, a, a great way to try to try to put something out there for people and make a little bit of money. And you know, I'll ask this all for you guys when it when it comes to like podcasts like this one or that one or radio shows. Do you, would you rather pay for something and not deal with commercials? You know, cause everything now you can pay for stuff, you know, video streaming and get rid of, get rid of ads or, or watch or listen to something for free and, and have to put up with a couple of commercials. 
I generally listen for free because I don't normally subscribe to something or, I mean, I'll listen to a few ads. That doesn't ever really bother me. So, yeah, I'm cheap. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm cheap. Yeah. Well, Sam, what do you think? So I am of the mindset where, um, I like how Ben does it with his. So he puts out a free episode every week on his Woodside podcast. Um, but then he has a premium subscription so he can dive deeper on certain topic topics like this turkey, you know, hunting stuff. So you, you kind of, you know, if people want to hear like the basic overview of stuff, like there's free versions, you know, kind of typically along the way, kind of an overview of stuff. And then if you really want to dive deep on a subject, I like the fact that you can, you know, um, really, you know, pay a little, subscribe. it's not very much money, subscribe and, and, uh, and really dive into it if you're a diehard. And I think that's the main thing where the people who are subscribing, you're talking directly to a very focused audience. So I think that's, I think that's kind of cool. And it's, it's not for everybody, but it, uh, it's certainly the people who listen, we got, it was really cool to just hear the feedback from people who had subscribed and listened and, and really like diving way into it all. No, that's awesome. And, and and the reason I'm asking is because we're considering kind of doing some subscription-based stuff too. And I just kind of want to get everybody's thoughts and listening habits. I'd, and, I'd agree with that too. Like if it's something I really want to learn about, sure. yeah, I don't have a problem paying a couple bucks or whatever yeah. it is just to learn more. Well, if, if it's going to be us who are getting paid, then absolutely. Yeah, pay for podcasts. <laughs> I mean, subscribe to every single one of them. <laughs> I mean, that changes the game here now. For sure. <laughs> you got to clear this up. <laughs> well, but, I think it would it would also give you guys the opportunity to, you know, like pick a topic and really dive into it if you're able to have the funding. You know, if you can if you can get that subscriber base build up, you can really tackle subjects and, and stuff that you want to explain more about and really give people a lot of value in in being able to listen to that and you don't have to try to you know get other sponsors to pay for a trip or whatever so you yeah. can actually create the content so there's uh but i like everything it's just a balance yeah and, and man i would love to do that i love our sponsors like we have great sponsors on the show and i'm not just saying that because they're our sponsors but they're all friends of mine they're all products or places we we love and uh, I just hate selling advertising <laughs> just to throw it all out there. So if anybody's watching and listening to this and want to advertise on the show, just just call me and I'll, we'll figure something out. Because I, I hate asking for people for money, which I guess you're doing on a subscription based service. But at least there, you know, you can just put your content out and then, you know, if people want to listen to it. They can just pay for it. And then it, it makes things a little bit easier sometimes. But I don't know. I, I, I think how you described what Ben does, where he has some free content and some paid content, that's that's probably, you know, like a hybrid type thing. It's probably what I would do too. Obviously this show would continue on the way it is, but I've got a couple other podcasts, some other projects in the works that I might put on a subscription service. So kind of feeling people out to see, see how they feel about it. Yeah, for sure. But, so I want to talk oh, real quick though. Where do people find that again? The roost, where do the, where can people get that? And when is the, the new, when are the new episodes coming out? So the, uh, um, you can find Roost Podcast on every streaming platform that where anywhere you find your podcast. So whether it be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or whatever, you can go listen to it. Um, the previous episodes come out every Thursday. Um, we're recording the next new episode on the 11th. And then we'll do um, kind of weekly episodes all the way through the rest of the spring. So, yeah, it should be fun. I think we're it's it's going to be cool. We're going to be able to do a lot of like turkey hunting stories and kind of dive into it on that side. And um, we're going to have, you know, like obviously from our big 
tour and trip, we're going to have a lot of uh, cool content coming out, like, you know, reels and videos and different stuff. And then um, we are doing a pretty awesome, we got something really cool in the works that's coming out uh, relatively soon here in the next couple of weeks, um, doing a pretty cool collaboration with, uh, yeah, it's just, I can't say much more. So close. Um, it is Turkey related. It's conservation related. It's, um, education related. So we're, uh, we, we've got a, a bit of a bundle coming out. So keep your eyes peeled for on, on my stuff and public land tees and Ben's stuff. And, um, yeah, we're going to, it's, it's going to be fun. All right. Very cool. Well, we got to for the radio show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back more with uh, Sam Soholt. If you're listening to the podcast or watching it, we're, we're not going to take a break for you. But if you're on the radio show, we'll be right back. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. We're back. This is Sporting Journal Radio. I'm Brett Amundsen. Thanks for tuning in on the network by demand, sportingjournalradio.com, or by watching this on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe, share it, smash that. Do people still say that? Smash that like button? You don't no. hear it too often anymore. Well, smash that like button anyway. <laughs> Check us out on YouTube and subscribe. Got a couple new YouTube channels, by the way. Fish Hunt Forever is our new uh, hunting and fishing video channel. Got some cool stuff on there. Trip to Niagara River fishing out there uh we also just put up one from lake of the woods recently where we did some ice fishing I met some really cool people i mean it's ice fishing at lake of the woods but we we kind of have some neat stories in there as well too and got pizza delivered on the ice best which, part hands down which was kind of cool <laughs> how do you beat so that check it out fish hunt forever on youtube i guess sam soholt right now sam it's turkey season but if you look out the window it doesn't really look like it no it does not i don't know so <laughs> my my wife does travel occupational therapy. So we spent uh, three months of winter down in Northern Missouri. So it was basically a non-winter compared to North Dakota. That was great. Got out of it. And then we're like, oh, we're coming back at the end of February, early March. You know, typically things start to change a little bit. And then we went on our three-week honeymoon. We're like, oh, by the time we get back, it'll be spring. And we've got another like 12 to 15 inches coming next next <laughs> week. So I, you know, I, you know, I'm just praying for a slow warm up at this point so we don't get a major flood going again this year. Now we're in Minnesota here, obviously. We got a lot of snow on the ground. We were down, um, let's see, I traveled up to North Dakota. I traveled down to the border of Nebraska recently. And you can see, you know, the snow line was kind of retreating. And then obviously another snowstorm hit, but what, or, or is hitting, uh, depending on when you're watching this or listening to this. When, how often have you hunted with, because now you're up, you're up by Fargo, right? Yep. You're still up there. How much snow is up there and how much snow have you turkey hunted in before? So right now, I mean, the piles in front of our house are six to eight feet tall. Uh, you know, I would say as a base, there's 30 some inches, like just on the ground everywhere. And, um, yeah. And then the, but as far as Turkey hunting in the snow, I mean, like, I don't, I don't Turkey hunt because I want to hunt in the winter. Like I, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I have, I have the coldest I've Turkey hunted in was, it was, we got a giant snowstorm snowstorm rolled through Northern Nebraska and we got like 
15 inches of snow or whatever. And then the next morning it was nine degrees and a buddy and I, it was that early archery season and a buddy and I went out and sat in the blind when it was that cold and he, he did kill a bird and, but birds did not gobble at all. Hmm. They, they came off the roost and the first time we had any idea that they were even close we could hear birds drumming back behind the blind. And then they came into the decoys and he was able to shoot one in that, you know, so got cool photos in the snow, but man, like I, I don't aspire to hunt turkeys in, in a, you know, a giant <laughs> snowbank. Like I'm after like, if like opening, opening day is the eighth, um, here in North Dakota. And I have a turkey tag, but I'm going to have to wear a snow ghillie suit and go in on cross <laughs> cross country skis if I want to get into, you know, oh. and they're all going to be flocked up. And um, that'd yeah, be an amazing not, that'd be an amazing video, though, Sam, you got to do that. I might just have to just, you know, just because like <laughs> just, just see if I can pull it off. Have you ever turkey hunted on cross country skis before? Not not yet. Oh, man. Has anybody? Yeah, I, that's a great question. <laughs> you, could, you could snowshoe in too. You could, but yeah, I could. But you know, I I think it, you know might be a little might be a little stealthier on cross country skis. Like just kind of glide across carpet. the snow. You got to put yeah. carpet on your snowshoes. That's how you I'll keep to, them quiet. I'll carpet. have to get that. I'll have to get that like snow tape for the the poles. You know, mm -hmm. as we go in. Yeah, <laughs> that snow. I was out in the backyard checking on my uh, propane tank. That apparently, I went through two hundred gallons of propane in seven weeks. This, which I think is a bit aggressive. It's been cold. And it might I, be I, a leak. I haven't even been home. That's the thing. Like most of the time, I haven't been home. The thermostat's been on like I think that one day, that one trip, I think I had the thermostat on fifty five and uh burn through all the propane anyway i walked out there to check the tank today and the snow is so hard and crunchy right now i don't know how i don't even know if you can get cross-country skis across it first of all but there'd be there'd be zero stealth yeah no there'd be zero yeah. stealth with it it doesn't help either that the full moon is on the fifth and so like can you imagine i mean going in and like the morning like you'd just be glowing <laughs> like with all the reflect or, you, know, you wouldn't you wouldn't need a headlamp which is nice right but who uses those? <laughs> Dan never breaks a headlamp. Overrated. Uh, so if, if you know, with the experience that you've had hunting when there's been snow, because I remember, you know, in Minnesota here, everybody used to try to get season A uh, back when you had, you could only get that. You had a draw for it and it seemed like yep. everybody wanted that first season. Uh, and then there were a couple of years where it was a lot of snow in that first season. And those guys that had that tag were like, ah, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> but if you're stuck, like maybe you, maybe you got a trip planned or whatever, and you're out there in snow. I mean, uh, like, what do you tell somebody like what other than a, you know, snow camo and, and cross country skis, what are you going to tell them about decoys or uh, calling or any of that stuff? Yeah, you know, it, it kind of depends on the region, right? You know, I'd, like the further south you can be, obviously birds are going to be a little bit more fired up earlier in the season, you know, but if you're way north country, um, you know, if you're stuck to a specific season, I would say, I don't know how hard I would push in on the roost super early in the, you know, try to be there in the morning because, you know, especially right now, they're going to be flocked up quite a bit. And then... Um, a lot of times when it's really cold, especially if you get any precipitation, uh, they're going to stay on roost longer. So there's no reason to like go barreling in somewhere um, and just freeze your ass off sitting on the, sitting on the snowbank um, waiting for them to come down from roost. So, I mean, I would probably try to hunt maybe that, you know, like wait till they're down and kind of, you know, get an idea of where they're going to be or think about where they're going, you know, like try to find if there's food that might be a little bit more 
you know, defrosted, I guess, you know, if you can find a field close by or ag that has been, the wind has blown off the snow, or if there's been enough sunshine to kind of break some of that loose, you know, go, go wait for them to head to that direction rather than trying to, to bust them off the roofs because they will be so flocked up. So you have time to go ice fishing in the morning. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The other downfall of snow is it's not like a nice 50 degree morning. It's like 20 or cold. 30 degrees. It's cold. <laughs> right. Yeah. So layers, I guess, would be the other tip. <laughs> well, and I mean, if you're setting up, you know, I don't know if you're hunting, if you're just spotting, you know, just running and gunning, or if you're trying to set up and, and hide somewhere. I mean, <laughs> are you carving out a, a, snow, a, a snow cave? Yeah. How fast can you build a snow fort? <laughs> I mean, honestly, it would probably work pretty well if you like could cut blocks and like, kind of like put them up in front of you a little bit. Like it'd be a pretty amazing blind, you know, to shoot from behind. But you know, like half, other, half an igloo with a window. Yeah. Yeah. Like a shooting you know, window. The, the one, the one benefit is the decoys would be super visible. Oh, sure. You know, from, from, any, from anywhere. So just, uh, you know, put up a strutter decoy, you know, even if you're a half mile from the roost, if you can, you know, walk in there and put that up, you know, everything's going to see it. It's certain to sound not so bad. Yeah. yeah. Go hunt the terrible. snow. See? <laughs> Everyone else go hunt A and B season. That's right. Yeah. I'll be busy. That's right. But yeah. someone else can go do it. Man, I got real excited. Uh, we were traveling. So I'm still in, I still got snow geese on the brain and we were chasing snows uh, here recently in the southern half of South Dakota. And, and uh, we were we were coming up a hill and right on top of the hill was, I don't know, set, what was there? Set, did you guys all see those turkeys? There's like seven or eight toms uh, just right on the side of the road. And one of them was in full strut. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh. Got, got me all excited. Oh yeah, gets the heart going. Yeah, it's time. Sure. So you got you got four uh, at least a four state trip planned for turkeys. Are you going to do any other traveling for turkey hunting? Yep. So I'm. Uh, it, we'll see how the cross country hunt goes. Um, but then we're going down to, or I'm going down to southern Iowa with some buddies, um, and we're going to hunt down and hunt Iowa um, for four or five days. I guess it's the 14th through the 18th is that second season, and then from there. Uh, I, I'll drive out to the Black Hills in South Dakota. I've got a photo shoot um, for Savage out there. I did pick up a Wyoming turkey tag, so that was more of a just-in-case thing, so I can hunt the um, the Black Hill side of in Wyoming. Oh, cool. That'd if, be awesome. I, yeah, if I have the time, I would love to spend a day or day and a half in there trying to trying to knock down a bird out there and, and get a Merriam's. But then I'll go to Salt Lake for a couple days, um, where my wife's next rotation is. Um, and then I'll rip up to Bozeman and meet up with Ben and Nick, um, Andrews, who's currently filming for the hunting public. We hired him to, to film a bunch of stuff for us. And then we are, uh, taken off and we'll start ripping around the West. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I've never really done much in Wyoming, but I might, I might have a turkey hunt, a film, a, I might film a turkey hunt in Wyoming there in Sweet. Northeastern Wyoming. So I'm kind of excited yep. about that. Just to go out. I, you know, hunting would be great, but I think it'd be really cool to film out there. For so, sure. Kind of looking forward to that. All right, Sam, we got to take another quick break more with Sam soul. When we come back on uh, sporting journal radio on the radio show or on the podcast, stay there. Did you know there are more than 1000 lakes in otter tail County? Yep. And I'm going to fish as many as I can. I'm an outdoorsy otter. Nothing beats a full day of fishing for me. The lakes of Ottertail County give me plenty of options to lower my boat and snag the perfect catch. Not an outdoorsy otter? No problem. Ottertail County has something for everyone. 
You just need to find your inner otter. To find your inner otter, go to ottertaillakescountry.com. All right, we're back. Sporting Journal Radio. Thanks for tuning in on the radio show right here on the Sporting Journal Radio Network by demand, sportingjournalradio.com, or maybe downloading the podcast or watching this on YouTube. Uh, David Eckhart, Dan Amundsen with me as well. And our guest is Sam Solholt. We're talking turkeys right now. And uh, we're going to have a, a few minutes here with Sam, and then we're going to go to the podcast with him, and we'll have a fishing report with Joe Henry for you on the radio. You listeners on the radio will have that for you. And we'll have it on the podcast too, but we're going to have an extended interview with Sam, uh, continue on the podcast or YouTube version of Sporting Journal Radio. Uh, Sam, I want to talk about your trip to New Zealand because uh, it's just got to be epic. I didn't realize that was your third time there. So we'll talk about what you did on your third trip there and you know uh, what recommendations, what advice you give to people about why they'd want to go. And since you've been there a couple of times, you kind of already knew, maybe you had some ideas of what you wanted to do. So I'm going to break down all that in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about land access because obviously you're a big public land advocate, which is huge for public access. And to me, I mean, obviously there's a lot of factors that goes into hunter retention, hunter recruitment, hunter reactivation. If you want to start talking R3s, uh, there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of tools you can use. But I think, I, I think, I think land access is is undervalued when it comes to that. People put a lot of emphasis on on other aspects of the R3 movement, but I think having places to go and, and good places to hunt, you know, at least adequate places to hunt, opportunities to go out there and walk for pheasants or, you know, climb into a tree to try to shoot a deer or, or whatever the case may be. Having that access, having that opportunity, obviously you, you want to have mentors that, you know, can maybe introduce you to those kind of things, but having places to go and as you see uh, more and more land get developed or more and more land get purchased by private owners, which I'm not going to knock them because honestly, I would love to own my own nice little chunk of, of prime hunting land. Of course, I think everybody loves that, to have that dream. But all of us here have spent a lot of time on public land and public land is really, really important. But now you're also starting to see various states and provinces change the amount of uh, licenses that are available for non-residents. And I want to get your opinion on the what the future looks like when you restrict some more non-resident hunting opportunity, and if that is going to benefit the resource in the long run, or if that's going to decrease opportunity for hunters and in turn decrease hunters and hunter numbers in the long run. What do you think about that? So, so this is just a theory that I have. Um, and so I could be way off base here with the actual science behind it all. Um, but I think the reason, one of the reasons that we're seeing this, this shift in the way state agencies are managing the states um, and, and provinces is, you know, and maybe not so much for provinces in Canada because the border was shut down for a while. <clears throat> but in the states, you know, you're starting to see restrictions on turkey tags in certain states. You're seeing restrictions on deer tags. You're seeing changes in the, the way laws are written in Western states for big, you know, elk and different stuff and the, how many tags they're actually allocating. And I don't know this for sure, but when you had that giant boom in COVID of the number of people not only uh, in the field, but the number of people applying because all of a sudden people had time on their hands to, you know, like say, oh, well, now I actually remember to like apply for this tag or now I have time to go do this or I can work remotely or I can do this. So you had this 
giant increase of people in the field when the infrastructure of public land access wasn't quite ready for it. So obviously we want more hunters into the fold because that adds to dollars in the pot for habitat and access and all of those things. But when it happens too quickly, what happens is you have overcrowding on these public lands. You have bad apples in the mix that ruin it for everybody where public land access, you know, whether it be walking area or someone had a bad experience or whatever, and people take their land out of block manager or out of walk-in or whatever, because they don't want people covering their property. So you had this perfect storm that was good for the pot overall, but now states are having to have a reactionary stance on these things and change laws uh, to make sure that the resource is still available for us going you know, down the road. So I think, I, I would like to hope that it'll balance out as people go back to work and, and we start to figure out how to deal with all these, these new hunters. Um, and, and I think what's happening is the states are reacting to what happened over the last couple of years. Now, you asked what I thought that meant for public land access. I think if done properly, and you hate to talk bad about, you know, like state governments are doing the best they can, Typically, it's, it's sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. I don't, like I'm trying to paint this in a positive light because I always I like to believe that the states have hunters in their best interest. That's not always true. A lot of times it is money driven, um, but most I would like times. to most of the time. But I would like to believe <laughs> that there are people in those positions that are trying to manage it in a way that will benefit and protect the resource for future generations. Now, I think what will happen and what probably needs to happen is as far as public land access goes, we need to see expansion in states like, so in North Dakota, you have the plots program, which is private land open to sportsmen. Hey Sam, um, I'm going to yeah. pause you there real quick. And our audience on the radio show is going to be real mad at me, but we got to go to Joe Henry of the fishing port on the radio show. If you want to hear more of our discussion uh, with Sam Soholt about public land access and hunter numbers and his trip to New Zealand, make sure you download the podcast or go watch this on YouTube right now. Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybale Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybale Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybaleheights.com. That's haybaleheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. All right, Sam, sorry to interrupt you there. Go back. You were talking about the PLOTS program in North Dakota. Yeah. So when you, when you look at like, um, you know, federal and state managed public land. So you have, you know, fed, at the federal level, you have waterfowl production areas. Um, you have national forests, national parks, obviously can't hunt on national parks, but there's large BLM. You have large swaths of public land. And then at the state level, typically you're looking at, you know, I guess the states probably manage all the waterfowl production areas, um, but the you have school sections, you have different, you know, you have state game production areas, that kind of thing. And adding to that amount of land is a very difficult thing to do because the, the A, the funding is hard to appropriate and B, like just there's a lot of bureaucracy when it comes to purchasing land to then turn over to the public. Um, that typically has to be done at the private level. Things like what Pheasants Forever does with the Build a Wildlife Area campaigns where they buy chunks of private, uh, manage the habitat on it, turn it back over to the public. But 
I think the next biggest thing that we can do and one of the biggest hurdles for people getting into hunting or even people who are currently hunting is have, like you said before, having access to good places to go hunt. So I think the next frontier or what can be rapidly expanded to kind of spread people out on the landscape and allow people to have a higher quality experience is these um, private land access initiatives. So in North Dakota, like I said, you have the plots program in South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, you have walk-in areas and Minnesota and And in South Dakota, they're, um, they're working on um, the Aberdeen pheasant coalition did it first, which was um, it's, community access funding. So what that means is um, businesses within Aberdeen, South Dakota added money into a pot and then working with Pheasants Forever and locals, they were able to incentivize landowners to uh, put their uh, land in a CRP program or in walk-in area for an extended period of time for that one-time payment. And in one year alone, they opened up 4,000 acres of walk-in area. Now, they're going to work on expanding that statewide, and I think other states can learn from that. I think it's going to be a way to open up lots and lots of access uh, for the general public at a fairly minimal cost. You know, and I had a, I had a conversation with Tony Peterson, uh, who works at Meat Eater. We just had a long conversation when I was driving one day, and he, he was talking about, he's like, you know, states have proven time and time again that they will charge non-resident hunters an exorbitant amount of money to hunt the state. And that's where a lot of the funding comes from for the biologists that manage everything, you know, access all of those things. So why not, you know, if you're already going to charge non-residents a bunch of money, why not have a chunk of that go directly into a pot that does that, that goes directly towards access, like, and that's all it goes towards. So, you know, it, it might be a, a way to, help non-residents chew off a, you know, thousand dollar elk tag or a, you know, $500 deer tag. If they know that say 10% of that money is going into an access fund that will pay private landowners to allow access for people to hunt on or, or, you know, have it be like a block management thing that they do in Montana where the landowner gets paid every time someone signs in uh, to hunt that property, that type of, that type of, uh, you know, expansion. And I think the more that we can do that, I think these, like the ruffling of feathers between residents and non-residents and state agencies trying to manage all of this, you know, this juggling act of making yeah. sure that everybody's having a quality experience while still protecting the resource. I think that alleviates a lot of that pressure on all of those things. So how do you get that done? Because, you know, in Minnesota, we have to buy, I think it's a $4 validation to hunt walk-in access land and that's mm-hmm. mostly mostly i think to track who's using the the walk-in land but obviously helping to fund it a little bit as well uh, they get majority of their money from somewhere else i can't remember where it comes from right now but um and then you can you can volunteer if i remember correctly you can volunteer to donate more and yep. i always i always donate more because i take advantage of those walk-in access i i you know i spent 10 years in north dakota and the plots land was my favorite like I, we did we did so much hunting on plots land up there, and so when I moved back to Minnesota and saw that there was kind of a similar program, smaller in scale, but private land open to hunting uh, via the walk-in access program, I thought, man, this is great. I want to support it, even if I don't get a chance to hunt it much, or I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of it around where I'm at. Uh, but I travel across the state a little bit. I ended up bumping into some of the some of the uh, areas that are open to hunting. That's on private land through that program, and I think it's great. 
so what how does it work in other states because north dakota you can just hunt it right there's there's no you don't have to pay to get on plots land or anything nope so it's it's free to get on plots when you buy any tag there is uh um you can donate to the plots program and which is i think is kind of cool i always add you know whatever five ten fifteen twenty bucks regardless of what license i'm buying i just always add to it um and i think the way that you would have to fund it especially if they continue to limit you know, non-resident number of tags or whatever, I think what would, would typically happen is there's going to be an increase in resident tag fees kind of across the board. Um, but I think there's, I think there's creative ways to do it, to fund, to fund these things. You know, you can, um, there's always ways to match donations um, with, you know, there's companies that are looking to donate money, regardless if it's for a tax write-off or whatever the purpose is behind it, whatever the motivation is behind giving money to program charitable programs. I think there's a way that you can, you can make the dollar go farther. So if it's a, you know, make it an opt out thing where if you go in to buy your license, it's going to, you can opt out of that $5 extra charge if you want, but have it kind of added in there if you're willing and know that that money is going to go into that fund and then find donors and work with conservation organizations that know of donors and know of companies who want to help match that funding. And so you can grow that pot very quickly and then spend that money on incentivizing landowners to open it up to walk and access for five, 10, 15 years, whatever the, uh, you know, whatever the basis of the terms are. Um, and so South Dakota actually started something similar to this. I don't know if it necessarily go, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily stay that it's going to go to like a walk-in access program, but they came up with that habitat stamp that everybody yep. kind of complained about at first. Cause like, well, I gotta pay if for non-residents. I gotta pay another 25 bucks to, to do this or whatever, but it does go to, fund wildlife habitat developments and public access improvements on public lands across South Dakota, establishing nesting and brood rain cover, tree and shrub plantings, food plots and hunting access trails, and also used to provide public hunting access to private, oh, there it is, hunt, uh, provide public hunting access to private lands that offer quality hunting opportunities. So are there, do we try to increase that? Is there a way to try to push some of these other states to create something similar to that? And how do you think you know, say say you're going to Montana as a non-resident hunt, where you might might be paying a thousand bucks to go hunt there, and they're you know they they've been in the news. I think they were the first state that I really started to hear about restrictions on non-resident tags uh, in recent years. Anyway, how do you think somebody you know if they're already paying a lot of money for that, and all of a sudden you see another twenty five dollars or whatever, um, how do you think that'll go over? And you know, do you think there just needs to be a clear explanation, and most hunters will go along with it? Yeah, I mean, any price increase never goes over well, and I don't, you know, I, I I don't think we can just like the general public, we can't tax people into submission, right. um, and, and you know, and that's what it feels like, and I think I think what we've done wrong, or we've done a very poor job of, you know, it, and I I learned way more about this when promoting duck stamp sales and purchasing duck stamps and trying to raise money is that most people had no idea where the money went in the first place. Um, And so, and that's, and that's when 98% of the money is going directly to wetlands. So the best um, program we have the best one. Yeah. But the fact that the, you know, the general hunting public 
really, I mean, I didn't, I'll be, I'll be totally honest. I was completely naive to how fun, like conservation funding worked until I really dove into it and did the research on my own. So that's been a big part of what I've done. What we've done at public land tees is just try to educate people on how important all of these things are. Yeah. And then it seems like once people understand that that money is going to fund the thing that you love to do, it's way easier to swallow like that, that price point of a tag or a license or a duck stamp or, or, a you know, a volunteering to go buy the mossy oak Turkey stamp or, you know, what, it, whatever it, whatever it might be. Once people understand that the funding actually the good that it actually does, it's easier for them to, to really dive into it and you not know, feel it, so bad. Isn't it funny about that too? Because I remember growing up, you know, it was always like, what's the least amount of things I need to buy to go do this. Right. Like what's the least amount of licenses that I need to pay for, you know, to go do this. And then as you get older, it's like, oh, well, if I buy the volunteers, you know, the uh, the like the walleye stamp, if mm-hmm. I get the wall. You know, I never used to get the walleye stamp, but I love to walleye fish because I'm like, gosh, they're already charging me enough. But when you start when you start to realize where that money goes, just like you said, it's a no brainer. Now, you know, anything, anything that's available here in Minnesota, I just check, check, check. I just, anything that can volunteer that will put money towards habitat conservation. I I just do it because I know we need that habitat that's out there. So it's easy for me to, to do that. It's nice that there are the, the opportunities to donate like that too. Right. You know, and before, you know, really before I really dove into understanding all of the conservation funding, you know, when people would complain about tag fees or whatever, I always tried to relate the the recreational value, like the the like the value that I get from hunting. So I always tried to relate it to concert tickets. And so, (laughs) you know, like, so, you know, if I'm going to go like, you know, I like country music, I like rock music or whatever. So if I'm going to, I'm going to pay 75 to a hundred bucks to go watch three hours of music. Right. Right. And, you know, when you buy your resident tags, I mean, I think North Dakota is like, I don't, I don't know the prices off right off the top of my head. Let's say it's 50 bucks for your, you know, general tag, another 50 bucks for your deer tag, another 50 bucks, you know, like say it's 150 bucks. Okay. Well, that's six hours of entertainment value that I would have paid for to go to a couple concerts, but I get to hunt for like 200 days if I want, you know, spring and fall. And so, I mean, the amount of value that I get from spending a minimal amount of money, um, it's like the price to value ratio is so good when you, when you talk about outdoor recreation. So I just don't, I mean, and I know that money's going to pay for the biologists that do the counts on turkeys and pheasants and deer, and and then they can figure out tag structures and all that kind of stuff. I just, I, it's not hard to, it's not hard to justify the cost when you understand it or, or relate it to something that, you know, like that you would spend a bunch of money on. It's a great way to, that's a great way to put it in perspective for people as well too. Now, not everybody's going to be able to hunt 200 days. And I think sometimes that's where you run into the problems when you got, you know, the guys that only hunt on the weekends, or maybe they take one hunting trip, you know, a year or whatever the case may be. Uh, I think that's where you run into issues once in a while. And kind of along those same, you know, the the same line there is, you know, when you talk about non-resident restrictions, I lived in North Dakota in, in 2000, and that was right around when the Minnesota-North Dakota war was going on about non-residents coming over to fish. 
in Minnesota, non-residents, you know, blue platers going over with a duck boat behind their truck going into North mm-hmm. Dakota. And it was like, ah, they hated each other. And it was like, well, if you're going to do this, I'm going to do this. And they all put in different regulations regarding non-residents and, you know, things have kind of settled down. But what we've got is what, two weeks for non-residents. And honestly, I haven't hunted North Dakota since I moved out of it. And part of that is because of some time restrictions, but a lot of that is because I'm traveling other places, so I don't really have the opportunity to go as much. But I miss hunting North Dakota. But when you think about restricting non-residents to two weeks, you know, or in, or you know, non-residents can't hunt the first week of the pheasant season, you know, so you give those residents the opportunity to, you know, uh, have the opening day tradition, hunt with their family, hunt their lands before, you know, the throng. Cause obviously the Dakotas get hammered by non-residents yeah. cause they're great. They're great States for the outdoors is, you know, instead of necessarily limiting tags is, you know, maybe limiting, you know, pushing back the non-resident opener a week or, you know, um, um, limiting it to two, two weeks. You know, like Manitoba, uh, they just came up with seven days now for non-residents for waterfowl hunters. A lot of people are up in arms about it, and I get it. You know, how many people take trips longer than seven days or go multiple trips to Manitoba to duck hunt? I'm sure there's some guys like like guys like uh, in this room and, and like you, Sam, take multiple hunting trips all the time. We're probably in the minority in a lot of that. So how big of an effect will this have? It's hard to say. But they're also, you know, going to implement a, a lottery for non-resident hunters first year for sure. It's going to be 100% successful. I've been told it's always going to be 100% successful. I'd like to think that that's going to be true. Um, they say it's to keep non-residents essentially from locking up all the land so that the residents lose out on hunting opportunities there in their province. How do you feel about protecting, you know, like North Dakota protecting resident hunting opportunities by limiting non-residents two weeks or South Dakota limits waterfowl hunters to a draw. Now they're going to limit, you know, some, some public land archery options for, for whitetail. Do you, I mean, obviously it's, you can't compare each state and, and do one thing for everybody, but do you think there's some value in, in that versus reducing opportunity, maybe just reduce time length or, or push the, the non-resident opener back a week, et cetera? Yeah, so I, um, I'll probably get a little bit of hate for this, but I am 100% in favor of states protecting the residents. You know, it's people, it's people who live in the state. They pay taxes in the state. They spend, you know, the majority of their time in state, spending money with local businesses. So I, I 100% understand it, and I agree with it. And you brought up the example of limiting um, non-resident waterfowlers in South Dakota. And there's a lot of people that are pissed off about that. And to me, if, so I grew up in South Dakota. And so I, and then I went to school in North Dakota. So I got to see both sides of how that all works, right? So even though they limit the time in North Dakota, there's still a lot, like way more non-residents that come in and, and waterfowl hunt in North Dakota. And what I will tell you is the difference is the quality of the experience that you get to have because of the limitation. Um, and because they limit the waterfowling in South Dakota, there isn't a bunch of land that's locked up um, by non-residents and you know for um, outfitters and that kind of thing. So people who are coming in to hunt, if you were lucky enough to draw the tag, it's it's a way better hunt. And so I think, you know, I understand people being pissed off about it, but I personally like 
I would rather manage for quality than the number of days that I can go hunt. If I know yeah. that when I'm there for 10 days or, you know, two five day periods or whatever it is, I know that I'm going to have a kick-ass experience because it's been managed for that. Now, I think it can lead to a lot of frustration, but I do appreciate the fact that they protect the people who chose to live there, you know, to, so that they, you know, they move there to hunt and fish, you know, like yeah. there's not, you know, there's, uh, you know, for people that love <laughs> for people that love the outdoors, there's not a lot of really good reasons to live in the Dakotas. Yeah. So, well, it's a tough one because, you know, obviously all of us like to travel to really cool places to hunt. So it gets frustrating when you're limited by days or or limited by um, available licenses and things like that. But at the same time, you know, where I live, uh, you know, on a busy weekend or uh, MEA or opener, it's like, especially like during pheasant season, you just see guys everywhere. And it's like, I don't even hunt on busy weekends. I don't even hunt. It, yep. You know, outside my back door, you know, particularly if I'm hunting public land and I hunt a lot of public land in the fall, I don't even go because it's just it's so busy. So yep. I I totally understand protecting it for the people that live and work there and pay the taxes there. I just worry, you know, where, where's the fine line? You know, where's that balance of of restriction to the point where it does create that quality experience so that. You know, you're not you're not traveling to go somewhere and then you're getting beat to every spot like that's going to that's going to stop somebody from going to do it. Maybe stop somebody from trying that activity ever again. Yeah. But if they also can't draw a tag, you know, you know, what I'm saying like where where is that fine line? Is it you know, is it working in North Dakota the way they're doing it in South Dakota? Is what's going to happen to man? I'm curious to see what's going to happen in Manitoba and if the other provinces follow suit up there. Because yeah. you know, if if waterfall hunters start getting restricted in Alberta and Saskatchewan too, it's going to be like, whoa, you know, there's a lot because those guys don't hunt as much up there in Canada. There's a lot more Americans that come up and waterfall hunt up there in Canada. And I understand yeah. protecting it for those guys, but there's going to be a lot of American money that's going to stop going up there. If yeah. they all like make these, you know, the seven days just seems like a bit of an extreme restriction for me. Yeah. And there was an interesting choice by Canada. I mean, not only you mentioned the fact that residents don't spend as much days in the field, but like, you know, and the, the, you said a lot of American money going north. Right. And that's not just from hunters. You know, if you look at the amount of money that organizations are spending in Canada, you know, Delta oh, yeah. Waterfowl, Ducks Unlimited, the, the literal billions of dollars that have flowed north of the border from organizations that are based in the U.S., you know, to increase habitat, protect habitat, you know, basically funding the, the duck factory um, or helping fund the duck factory. It's, it's an interesting move by Canada. And I, again, you know, I can understand it, but I'm, a, I'm surprised that they didn't, um, I'm surprised that they didn't either grandfather in people who have bought property up there. I think they um, did. I okay, think they, they did. I think they actually yeah. did. There was a land, land landowner legacy license, I believe, or something like that. Okay. But then on top of that, I'm surprised. And, you know, and then this would be a slippery slope too, but I'm surprised, you know, like let's take, you know, if you're a non-resident who upland hunts in South Dakota, if you buy a license, you get two five day periods, but you can buy as many of those as you want. So you could hunt all season. You just got to be willing to spend the $127 several times um right. <laughs> you know so that's a good like, idea sure yeah so, so I, i'm surprised that canada didn't put in 
you know, cause most people are going to go hunt five to seven days, you know, five right. to seven days of waterfowling, you're crushed anyway, you know, unless nah. you're, unless you know what I mean? Like, like, but if you go hard for seven days yeah. of waterfowling, you're trip. crushed. It's a long yeah. trip. And for most people that is going to be, you know, like their trip of the year. Now I'm surprised that Canada didn't put into place like, okay, you know, you apply for a license, you get seven days, but then have a fee, you know, that if you wanted to extend that, or if you're going to, if you're planning on spending 30 days in Canada or whatever, then it costs you, you know, X number of dollars. And then that just goes into their pot, you know, it helps fund everything that they do. So, and most people wouldn't pay that. A lot of people would grumble about it, but there's also a lot of people that would say, yeah, sure. Like I get, you know, tons of value and I can, you know, like I can do this. And and again, I, I don't want to keep adding cost onto the hunter because at some point we need to, you know, we need to, I There's want, a balance there too. Of, there is. Of pricing I, things is, out for them. Right. I want as much opportunity for as many people as possible because I never want it to be like Europe where it's a rich man's sport. Like that right. is not the goal, you know, and that's going to take, you know, the collective to make sure that doesn't happen. But, um, yeah, that, I think you're, I think you're spot on though. I think there's a balance between, you know, and that's, that's the hard part, right? The balance between restrictions but still having, still protecting the resource, but still managing for quality, um, you know, and, and there's, there's really only two things that state, there's only two tools that states have when it comes to managing the resource. And that is season length and tag allocation. So those are the, you know, and they have, they, they manage, they react based on the influx of hunters and, you know, if there's a bad weather event, like there's only two tools that they really have to, to take care of that. So you got to look at it from their perspective too, and say, oh, there's really, there's really not many options for them. And they just kind of like shift those up and down, depending on all of the other factors that they see going into it. Well, and that Manitoba deal that the draw, that's going to be hundred percent successful. What I've been told is that was mainly put in place so they could track like the amount of hunters and the number of licenses and things like that, just to give them a better system for tracking. So, Mm -hmm. but in the verbiage that I read, it said, you know, it'll be evaluated, you know, down the road to see, you know, how things are working. So they have the the ability to change and tweak things if they need to. There might be a little more to that. We don't know about, you mentioned be, you know, not wanting to become like Europe, becoming a rich man's sport. I'm starting to have a bad hunch. That's exactly what Canada wants. And that there might be an ulterior motive to this and just trying to keep America and guns out. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't know. I feel like this is almost on a different level than like the South Dakota deer deal and the uh, Nebraska turkey deal. And some of our states just trying to keep non-residents out to protect hunting. I wonder if Canada's not doing a little something just to keep guns out or something. Well, it is the, qu- it is the queen's land. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> Kings, right? Yeah. Kings land now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly, though. Well, I will say... Canada is very good about protecting Canadian business. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody thinks about America being America first. Canada is Canada first, for sure. And, you know, uh, anyone that, that has, you know, does some freelance work, you, you're you always careful that you're by the book with everything that you do when you go into Canada because they always want that job to be offered to a Canadian first. So Canada is very business first. So they're, they're obviously going to have a, a number of tags available for outfitters. So I, I think this is maybe more of a way to get them to use the outfitters. I hope so. And, and that way, the freelancers will have a chance to bounce around a little bit. 
but the outfitters will, and, and the residents then will not have to worry about as many freelancers. And then all the other non-residents will have to go through the outfitters and the outfitters will get the business and the outfitters will do it on the land that they already have. That's already for the most part established. And they also reduce the number. If, if I get this correct, they reduce the number of licensed waterfall outfitters. So they got rid of some guys that weren't using their allotment of days. Um, they got rid of some of the outfitters that maybe weren't following the regulations to the T the way they were supposed to. So I think it's down to like 60 licensed Manitoba out waterfall outfitters. That'll be a part of this. That'll have tags. So we'll see, we'll see what the future holds And Sam. We could talk about public access probably for, for a few hours here, but let's give our listeners a break from that and talk about being a non-resident and traveling to an Island called New Zealand to do, did you do some hunting over there this time or was it just kind of a, a let's go bungee jumping and, and hang out on the island, uh, drink some cold ones on the beach? What did you do over there? So my whole life revolves around hunting, fishing, the outdoors, you know, photography, video. Um, and the this New Zealand trip was solely recreation. It wasn't related to hunting. I fished a couple days, but this was my wife and I's three week honeymoon that we tried, wanted to take in 2020 before the world shut down. And it was, uh, it was honestly just fun to go. It was fun to go on a trip and recreate for the sake of recreation. So this was like, we covered the whole South Island. We rented a car and drove all over the place. Um, the photo that's being shown right now is, uh, from the Milford sound. Um, and it's, it was, the Milford Sound. Just, I just want to explain it a little bit. So you you drive to. Or you, we stayed in a place called Teanu, um, which is kind of like an, about an hour from Milford Sound. But the the day that we drove in, we were driving through a huge rainstorm, and um, what happens in a big rainstorm is you have these granite cliffs all around you on the drive in, and waterfalls that wouldn't normally exist show up because of all the rain coming down. So you're driving past literal literally thousands of waterfalls coming down and it's just like it's it's next world it looks like a fantasy land it is so freaking cool um and so yeah we just bounced around the south island you know flew into Christchurch and um you know hopped on a train and went up into the southern alps and hiked to a waterfall and and then um you know drove back down to Christchurch and on the way you know swung by there's a a really weird like rock formation. That's a whole bunch of limestone rocks that were deposited, uh, deposited from the last ice age. And it's where they filmed like the battle scene from one of the Narnia movies, the Lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Um, you know, and then we, we went to Dunedin and, um, hung out on the beach. And then there's a, there's the steepest road in the world is in actually in Dunedin, New Zealand. Um, it's like a 36% grade. And so it's, oh it's wild. Yeah. It's just like straight, <laughs> straight up. Um, and, uh, went to, went to Queenstown and hung out in Queenstown, did a couple really cool hikes. You know, you, you hike 4,700 vertical feet in five miles. And so it's basically just like you walk straight up for five miles and get to the top and you can see endless Southern Alps and glaciers as far as you can, you know, look out to. And, um, yeah, we bungee jumped off the, uh, I forget the name of the bridge. It's like the Wakararu bridge or whatever. How'd that um, go? Yeah. Right. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a 43 meter drop. Um, so it's, you know, about 150 feet and 
that was incredible. Um, we were actually, we'd rented bikes the day before and did a big tour through this little town called Arrowtown. And we biked across the bridge and, and saw some people bungee jumping and actually watched a woman jump and uh, she hit the bottom of the bungee and her shoes flew off and then floated down the river, uh, never, to, <laughs> never to be seen again. So, no. <laughs> but, but we, we signed up for the next morning and then, um, yeah, we went and jumped off and, uh, man, it's just a, that absolute rush. But, um, if you're watching this of, on YouTube, by the way, you can see Sam bungee jump in the video there. Go ahead, Sam. No, I think, uh, you know, one of the funniest things that happened on the trip is so if anybody knows anything about New Zealand, it is like the sheep capital of the world. So if, if anybody wears merino wool, um, the best merino comes from New Zealand. Hmm. Um, and like, because the, because of the climate though, and the way the, the, like, it must be the nutrients in the climate, but it, it creates a smaller micron. Uh, so like a softer wool. And so like, apparently the best merino comes from New Zealand, but there are uh, not only merino sheep, but there are sheep everywhere. Like, I mean, you know, in our, we drove whatever, 3,000, 3,500 kilometers on the, the odometer on the rig that we rented down there. Wow. And I, I bet we saw 2 million sheep in our drive, just driving around. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're everywhere, but, but they're, these we are driving. These are like, uh, eggs, like uh, yeah. farm sheep. Domestic, okay. Yeah. Domestic. domestic sheep. Yep. And so, but we were driving between Dunedin and Queenstown and, um, I was following this little truck, pulling a trailer and, um, also, all of a sudden a sheep gets like tumbles under the tires of this trailer and it's laying on the road, you know, in front of us. And then I was like, what is going on? And I thought a sheep had come out from the field and got hit by a car or hit by this truck in front of us. Well, this truck pulls over and I see the door of this little horse trailer fly open and all these sheep go barreling out of this horse trailer, <laughs> like onto this little hillside. And like, I drove around the sheep that was on the road and pulled up to the guy and he's out there in his New Zealand accent, like, you bastards, you know, like yelling at the sheep. And so, 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 so I, was, I was like, you want to help with any of this? And he, he's like, just try to push him down the road a little bit, you know? So like we drove around him and he's trying to do, get this door shut and get other sheep back corralled. And like, I drove up next to the sheep and then he came up behind me and then him and I, drove kind of side by side down the road and he's honking at the sheep and we're yelling at him and push these sheep down the road for like a mile and a half and like a backup of traffic behind me uh like trying to figure out why i wasn't driving around this guy who was like pushing sheep down the highway but oh man i just never thought i'd be herding sheep in new zealand at some point <laughs> uh travel how was travel getting there and uh did those other two trips did you do any hunting at all or anything or is yes. it just working yeah. So the second trip, um, I was, it was a, a chamois and tar hunt that I was the photographer. Okay. Um, and so it was, I uh, went there for Yeti and shot a bunch of photos. Um, and it, Adam Greentree was one of the hunters. Ben O'Brien was the other hunter. And then, um, I kind of got screwed out of my day of hunting, but that oh, was boy. more of like on the guide. That's a whole other story, but, um, we tune in next week to sporting journal. Radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that trip got to spend time like way up, you know, in the Alps and do the helicopter thing and, you know, cool. hiked up, hiked up and, and killed it. Uh, Adam killed a tar. And then we drove and then hopped in a helicopter and flew up and, and he killed a chamois. And then we flew up the next day and it was going to be my turn to, to kill a chamois. And we like, they, you know, kind of put us in like the gar hole. Um, <laughs> and, and then we, we like, 
hauled ass all the way down this ridge for a whole day and like we're like 300 yards from a chamois in a good spot and uh and then phil the guy was like oh yeah i think it's time for the helicopter to come pick us up <laughs> i was like oh, all right i guess i guess we're i guess we're done here but um so yeah that I was a pretty good the... new zealand accent by the way yeah, i just want to say oh, it's like, better than the sheep guy yeah earlier well i couldn't swear like the new zealand guy i didn't want to on the radio but appreciate yeah. that yeah so yeah. um but no the uh um do you have to go to an outfitter if you hunt out there Nope, you can freelance down there, and oh, really? I I don't believe you need to buy a hunting license. Um, you have to buy a fishing license if you fish, but I don't think there's actual tags for anything. It's just, oh, wow. uh, yeah, you just have to like if you bring a gun, obviously you have to like check your gun and have the police like give you a permit for having a gun in country. Um, but yeah, this time was just all about you know traveling and recreating and. Um, but it's if anybody's traveling there, you need to make sure. Like when I got there, <laughs> uh, we brought a tent in case we camped, and uh, I hadn't opened that tent in like two years, and uh, <laughs> so they they're like, "Oh, we got to check the tent." So they took it back like in the the lab or whatever to check for plant matter and stuff, and it was taking a while. <laughs> and they came back with just like the bundle of like the tent, and they're like, "Well, there was a lot of plant matter in there, so we had to shake <laughs> we had to shake that out pretty good." So we didn't want to delay it anymore. So here's your tent, and it was just like. <laughs> you know, like the fabric all put together. But, um, but no, it's, if you, if anybody's going to New Zealand, because they're so protective of the island ecosystem, just make sure your boots are spotless, make sure all of your, you know, hunting gear, camping gear is cleaned, um, wiped down. Um, they're just trying to do their best to not have, you know, a, a nat another native species come in because the, the rivers have, um, through the felt on fly fishermen's, you know, the old boots that were mostly all felt bottom. Yeah. Um, it brought in an invasive, and I don't know what it's called, but it kind of looks like long strands of snot that sits on the rocks. Rock snot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gross. <laughs> we just um, learned we about that on Prairie Sportsman. Oh, Rock really? Snot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, there you go. So yeah, but it, it got, it uh, got into a bunch of the rivers in New Zealand. And so now like if you get a big rainstorm, like we did one day this, um, when we were down there, I fished, um, like it was like a day and a half later, the rain had quit, but it, the rivers were still high. And I went and tried to fly fish and it was like every third cast, I had to be cleaning my fly or cleaning my line or whatever. Cause I was like picking up snot that was floating down the river. I was like, Oh, this isn't even, <laughs> this isn't even fun. <laughs> this, but <clears throat> well, but, yeah. Did your wife bungee jump? She sure did. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. It was uh so she went first, um, just the way it worked out. Like on, we, there's two platforms you jump off. So she had gone to one and the, um, so she jumped first and she, uh, she jumped and screamed the whole way down. And, uh, the, the guy turns to me and goes, ah, she's got a set of lungs on her, doesn't she? <laughs> so like, yeah, she, yep. she didn't uh, lose her shoes. Did she didn't lose her shoes? Double, okay. you know, double knot of them. So okay, good. what a bad mystery for some poor fisherman down the river. That'd be right. Just a pair of shoes. Find shoes covered in snot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Sam Soholt, check out uh, the Roost podcast that's out there now. And uh, what else? Anything else you want to plug right now, Sam? No, I think just the Roost podcast and keep an eye out for the pretty cool collaboration we got coming here right up. Very good. Well, uh, keep up the good work with everything that you do for public lands and hunting access and uh, fighting for our rights to continue what we're doing, what we like to do. And uh, you'll have to make a, a hunting trip probably back to New Zealand one of these years. Maybe, maybe oh, yeah. We'll, I'll try to go Maybe next we'll all year, come hopefully. with you. <laughs> yeah, let's make it happen. I want to go right. back next spring. Kodiak straight to New Zealand. Oh, I like it. Yes. <laughs> I like that way you think, yeah. Dan. All right. Yeah, the time, Sam, so. The time, but yeah. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> 
we'll, we'll find something else to do in between. That's uh, right. yeah. Sam Soholt, thanks for the time today on the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me on. Live Target, the leader in Match the Hatch, is back with new lures that also match the action. Introducing the Live Craw. The Live Craw is irresistible to bass, walleye, and other freshwater species. FTEX winner, the ultimate frog, looks and acts just like a swimming frog. With an exposed ultra point mustad hook and replaceable legs, the ultimate frog has two styles, two sizes, and eight colors. And ICAST and FTEX winner, the live shrimp, mimics a fleeing shrimp for saltwater anglers. Coming soon from Live Target. All right, now we're gonna go up to Lake of the Woods to check in with Joe Henry from Lake of the Woods Tourism. Joe, how you doing? Hi, Brett, how are you? I'm excited. I can't believe how close we are to the SJR 500, the second annual Rainy River Fishing Tournament. It's gonna to be coming up at Riverbend Resort. Well, comes up on the river, but we're gonna be headquartered out of Riverbend Resort. We're gonna have a uh, rules meeting, an optional, optional rules meeting, April 10th. It's a Monday after Easter at 6 p.m. Then the tournament will run from eight to four on uh, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, April 11th and 12th. And we'll do a, a live pod, well, re live recorded, recorded live podcast. Does that make sense? Recorded in front. Recorded before sure. a live studio audience. <laughs> Sporting Journal Radio. You can come and join us at uh, Riverbend. 40 bucks to get in with 50% payback and 25% of it is going to the Keep It Clean initiative at Lake of the Woods. That's a, that's a big deal, isn't it, Joe? Well, I'll tell you what. So first off, I would just say this. Enjoy a fantastic uh, Easter with your family. Next morning, have everything ready to roll, hook your boat up, grab a, a friend or two, and jump, jump in the vehicle and just head north. 40 bucks, go fish in the Rainy River. You're right. You have to admit, you were worried that river wasn't going to open up. Well, last year, I mean, it, it barely opened up, and we had one, one access and then two accesses by the second day. And it was a snowstorm. But what we noticed is that once one access opens up, they all start to open up pretty quickly. And Birchdale's already open, Joe. We got, well, we got Birchdale open. And then the next one down is Frontier. And Frontier, uh, there's there was a little bit of ice in front, but that's getting pushed out real quick. That'll be open. If it's not open today, it might be open, be open tomorrow. That would be two. And then, like you said, they go quick, you know. But you know, I tell you, we do have uh, open water in the rainy, and uh, we got ice people fishing simultaneously. They're catching big pike on one end of the lake. On the other end, they're uh, they're whacking walleyes on the open water of the rainy river. It's the traditional spring river season, and uh, it, it's just incredible. And, um, you know, it's interesting, Brett. I'll jump back. You were talking about the Keep It Clean deal, and I actually had a, an opportunity to hang out with some of the folk, folks from Min Fish, which, you know, Min Fish, you guys, is that organization in Minnesota that really is created to create a, a very quality sport fishing opportunity in the state of Minnesota. Led by Ron Shera, there's a lot of other uh, a who's who in the fishing industry uh, helping it along. But, you know, they're, they're pushing initiatives such as, you know, um, doing things such as improving our boat accesses, adding more boat ramps to lakes that don't have them, improving boat ramps that really need help. And certainly our some of our hatcheries have, have been neglected for decades and they're they're, they're not caught up to speed. They got broken equipment, blah, blah, blah. But they're, they're really working hard to get funding to bring those things back to where they need to be so we can have better stocking efforts and better access to our lakes and rivers. And, and, and they're doing a number. They're also supporting our Keep It Clean initiative. Ron Shera helped us with the video. They're, uh, they're helping, you know, as far as lobbying efforts and, and bringing up the Keep It Clean initiative. And, you know, for those that haven't heard, that Keep It Clean initiative, really in a nutshell what that is, is in the future, if this goes through, all it's gonna mean is that when you go ice fishing, instead of putting garbage outside of your fish house on the ice, of course, then it has a chance to 
to blow away, to freeze in, to have snow cover, have birds get into it, you forget it. The bottom line is a much, much larger chance of, of garbage being left on the ice. You would simply have to contain it right away. Keep it in your fish house, keep it in your vehicle, keep it in an enclosed container that's attached to one of those. So uh, we don't think it's too hard of a lift, but uh, if we can get that through, we believe that that's going to make just a huge, huge difference in, in how much trash is going on the ice in Minnesota waterways. And, uh, of course, MinFish and many other organizations, the DNR and everybody else, they're, uh, they're supporting it wholeheartedly. So it's it's been good. I was uh, down at uh, a legislative reception with MinFish and had a chance to chat with the governor about it a little bit. And, um, you know, Senator Utke, Representative Andrew Myers was there. And uh, and, uh, and and that was just that event. You know, uh, we've been, uh, been to the uh, uh, state capitol talking to other legislators. Uh, recently, I talked to, you know, our uh, representatives up at Lake of the Woods, Representative uh, Green and, uh, sorry, Senator Green and Representative Grossel and and many, many others uh, are supporting this initiative across the state. Well, it's it's great and it needs to happen. And especially when you talk about uh, the amount of angling hours in the winter on Lake of the Woods, not to mention all the ice fishing that takes place in all the, all the other lakes that we have here in the region. There's going to be, there's going to be a lot of trash. There's a lot of act, human activity on the lake and uh it's just important to keep that i mean all and, and i and i would bet that a lot of it is unintentional when waste gets left on the ice and i would bet that a lot of those people that unintentionally leave that garbage on the ice are the are some of the bigger proponents for conservation and clean water and keeping our lakes clean they're big anglers that spend probably a lot of open water time out there as well too and it just happens accidentally so it's just that much more important to have a plan uh, when you go out there and Joe, we got to, we got to call it on uh, the radio show here. We're going to continue this interview with Joe Henry and talk about planning when you go out there on the ice here. Uh, more with Joe Henry on the podcast. Northern Minnesota's walleye factory is a year round world-class fishing destination. The perfect getaway this summer is just a short drive to Lake of the Woods. Fish Big Traverse Bay, the Rainy River, or visit the unique Northwest Angle. To catch big fish, you have to go where the big fish are. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. That's lakeofthewoodsmn.com. All right, Joe, it's, a, it's really important to kind of have a plan when you go out there so you can bring that garbage off the ice, isn't it? Well, I tell you, it is important to have a plan. And, you know, everything from, you know, using colored garbage bags to where we're going to put our trash. When we use the restroom, where are we going to use the restroom? How are we going to dispose of that? Um, you, you know, have a plan of where your garbage is going to go before you hit the ice. Are you bringing it home with you? Are you going through a resort and they have garbage access for you? I mean, what are you going to do with it? And that's important. The bathroom thing, planning that ahead. It's important. Yeah. You know, um, I'll tell you, you know, as I sometimes start up this conversation, you know, I'm behind an effort called Keep It Clean. I'm not a tree hugger, meaning I'm not one of these far um, to the whatever side. Uh, I'm not one of these radicals, okay? I hunt, I fish, I really care about the land, and I care about our resources, but I'm not a whack job. You know, I'm, I'm, I would call myself pretty mainstream guy, you know, and but, but this, of all the things I've ever seen, this rule alone, you know, Brett, if, if you said it correctly earlier, I think there's two kinds of people as a rule. There's, there's a very, very small segment that are people that just don't care. They're pigs. They don't care, you know. And, and then there's another group that really do care. But, hey, if we're going to go and spend a few nights on the ice, hey, we'll just set it outside our fish house with full intentions of picking it up. But stuff happens. You know, a warm garbage bag with either 
you know, a, a human waste in it or even just warm garbage from the fish house will freeze into the ice. Now when it freezes, you pull it up, the garbage rate breaks. You get snow events. You get 40-mile-an-hour winds. You get 25 below. You leave them when it's dark. You leave them when it's tired. You leave one big garbage behind, and you mul multiply that by hundreds, if not thousands, of people on the ice. We have tons of garbage that are being, that's being left behind accidentally by good-meaning people. If that garbage wouldn't touch that ice to begin with, tons of garbage is going to be kept from going into our waterways across the state, quite, quite frankly, across the ice belt. If, if this would ever catch on in other states. And I'll tell you what, uh, I really think this is a good one. Uh, yeah. This well, isn't I mean, too much to ask. This no, really and, isn't. It's and, not a big deal. And think about it. You wouldn't you wouldn't go into your kitchen, grab your garbage can, empty the bag, pull the bag out, and instead of taking it out to your garbage can or your dumpster or whatever you got outside, throw it in your boat, go dump your boat in the lake, and then just toss it out of your boat. You wouldn't do that. So... Uh, Why is ice any different, right? It's not any different. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I, again, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where, well, you know, I, I realize there's too much regulation in our world in some cases. Yeah, for sure. I get that. You know, at the same time, this is one. And I'll tell you the other thing it does. And, and of course, I know whenever I bring up the DNR, there's going to be some haters. But, uh, you know, a lot of good people that work for the DNR, a lot of good, well-meaning people that really try hard and, Think, think what you will, you know, but, you know, um, they're, they're behind this thing. And one of the reasons they're behind it is because they can see the the impact it'll have, the positive impact on the environment. And number two, it gives the conservation officers something to enforce. You know, uh, currently, there's hardly any regulation. You know, they almost have to literally catch somebody in the act of driving away from their piles of garbage before they can do anything. The chance of that truly happening where they're right on top of you, because you wouldn't do it if they're yeah, right on top of you. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? Well, uh, we are going to be donating to Keep It Clean as part of the SJR 500, the second annual fishing tournament up on the Rainy River to celebrate uh, Sporting Journal Radio hitting the 500 episode mark last year. Uh, but we'll be up there. And, Joe, I know people are fishing at Birchdale is open. Frontier is opening up. Uh, are they catching? Have you heard? Are they catching big fish on jigs? Have you heard any anything about how they're catching? Because the, there's been some nice fish caught already up there this year. Oh, they're catching some nice fish. Yeah, and that photo you just showed was one of the first photos when the access first opened where there's ice. It's all cleaned out now. But, you know, yeah, they're getting some nice fish. And, you know, uh, they're getting some nice walleyes. Uh, they're, they're getting them a couple different ways. One of them is jigging with big plastics, which is traditional this time of year. Uh, another one is jigging with, you know, uh, minnows, fro frozen emerald shiners as a rule. And the third one, and I haven't heard of this, but I know it's happening, is pulling crankbaits, whether that's pulling them along the shoreline or uh, – pulling them, you know, uh, with, with a three-way rig like we did last year. Yeah. And, uh, you know what? Uh, speaking of, I haven't heard any trash talk yet for the tournament. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. Is Danny, is Bring Danny, up. is he, uh, was he a uh, beat up too bad last year uh, with lack of fish that he doesn't want to go this year again? Uh, bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> I heard he's got new electronics. I heard he's got a new boat. And I heard, like, like, he's like, I heard he was talking to friends behind the scenes saying, you know what? That rainy river, I'm going to do better this year. I'm going to get a new boat. I'm going to get some electronics. I'm going to really do better. I'm going to follow Joan Brett around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did get the new boat, and Dan, you just ordered new Garmin's, didn't you? New Garmin's on the way. We'll see what happens. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. You guys bring it on. <laughs> we'll we let the results share up. What did Let me you ask get? you a question. Are you going to target suckers this year or just going <laughs> to You have no idea what I'm going to do, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some tricks up this sleeve right here and you've never heard of them. 
You know, I always I always say this, and I always want to preface it for listeners that don't know Danny. And of course, I kid around with him because because he's a friend, but he's a good stick. And uh, you know what? I got a feeling that he's out for he's out for blood this year. I got a feeling he's gonna catch some fish. I know, and we haven't we haven't talked about boat assignments yet. And I, I you know, Joe, you and I fished last year. You and I might be fishing this year. There was talk of me and Dan. Well, fishing. You're definitely not fishing with me. This I was year, ner- like, all this. I'm legit oh nervous. Gosh. Like if I if I do end up in the boat with Dan, I'm like, he's gonna just be cutting my line 100%. all the time. Yeah. You know, you're gonna get caught in that motor so much. <laughs> I got a feeling. I got a feeling. Danny, uh, Danny's gonna be the guy. Whoever's fishing with Danny is gonna whack a few too. Well, I'm excited about it. It's going to be a good time. Learn more at sportingjournalradio.com. And if Joe, if people want to learn uh, more about Lake of the Woods, maybe plan a trip to the Rainy River this spring, what should they do? You know what? Uh, follow our Facebook page. You know, that, that's got the most current information, the, you know, Lake of the Woods tourism. And uh, otherwise, hey, check out our website. And that is lakeofthewoodsman.com. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to SportingJournalRadio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to SportingJournalRadio.com.